We've been going through a series in John, and we'll continue today. And the first thing I want to start with is just asking the questions, have you ever been un- misunderstood? <laughs> Some of us are misunderstood more than others. Um, I happen to be an extreme extrovert. Extreme extrovert. If I'm saying it, I haven't thought through it. I'm just telling you whatever's in my head, and it just comes out my mouth. That's an extreme extrovert. Extreme introverts hate extreme extroverts. <laughs> Because everything that comes out of their mouth, they've thought about for about three days. And extreme extroverts say, what a waste of time. <laughs> Why don't you just say it? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> the problem of being extreme and extrovert is whenever you just say things that are on your head and they just come out, sometimes you say things without thinking them through, and then sometimes you're misunderstood. Right? That's me. Have you ever been misunderstood? The following is a series of advertisements reportedly appeared in a daily newspaper. Monday, A.J. Jones has a color TV set for sale. Telephone number 626-1313 after 7 p.m. And ask for Mrs. Donnelly, who lives with him cheap. On Tuesday, we regret any embarrassment caused to A.J. Jones by a typographical error in yesterday's paper. The ad should have read... A.J. Jones has one color TV set for sale, cheap. Telephone number 626-1313. And ask for Mrs. Donnelly, who lives with him after 7 p.m. On Wednesday, A.J. Jones um, informs us that he has received several annoying telephone calls because of the incorrect ad in yesterday's paper. It should have read, A.J. Jones has one color TV set for sale, cheap. Telephone number 626-1313. After 7 p.m., and asked for Mrs. Donnelly, who loves with him. Thursday. Please take notice that I, A.J. Jones, have no color TV set for sale. I have smashed it. <laughs> Don't call 626-1313 anymore. I have not been carrying on with Mrs. Donnelly. She was, until yesterday, my housekeeper. Friday. Wanted a housekeeper. Us- usual housekeeping duties. Good pay. Love in. A.J. Jones, 626 one three one three. <laughs> Mistakes are inevitable in publishing businesses. <laughs> uh, can you relate to the feeling of being misunderstood? I told you I feel like I'm a magnet for misunderstanding. <laughs> I really feel like a magnet for it. Like not only the small misunderstandings, the big ones um, I fall into often. I'll give you an example. Um, not small ones, big ones. Usually funny. Like God's up there going ha. <laughs> Look what you got yourself into now. Several years ago, we hired a pastor here named Paul Crandall. He's now our high school pastor. Um, he, uh, he got here uh, right out of seminary, and I thought it would be good for him to go to a conference with me in Chicago. Happened to be where they were stationing this certain conference, and so we went to Chicago together. We left late at night, our time, San Francisco time, which means we get to Chicago doubly late because of the hour difference and whatnot get off the plane, get our rent-a-car, and go get dinner. At this point, it's already past midnight, and we're eating Chicago-style pizza. And uh, get in our car, and we have to drive about an hour and a half to two hours to wherever this place is where it's closer to the conference. So finally, in the wee hours of the morning, we step into the hotel. Go into the lobby of the hotel uh, together, both very, very tired, and we walk up to the front desk, and we do the usual. Do you have a confirmation number? Yes, I do. Um, you know, oh, thank you, Mr. Tyler, for coming. Uh, we need a credit card for incidentals, right? And we, um, by the way, the Courtyard by Marriott gives you free breakfast. So 
7 to 10 a.m. to your left is breakfast, right? Uh, where are you guys traveling from? Oh, we came from San Francisco. Um, really, really, really tired. And so um, then the guy asked kind of a peculiar question, I thought. And he says, are, are you here on business or pleasure? And you know, how, you know how things race through your mind like in a millisecond? It's amazing how your mind can go so fast. And I'm thinking to myself, business or pleasure, business or pleasure. Why is he asking business or pleasure? I mean, maybe if I say business, they're going to charge us more because they think it's not on his credit card and the business, they don't care how much they spend on the business. And so if I say business, they charge us more. And I'm thinking, this is all happening in a millisecond. So I'm thinking, business or pleasure, oh, I, this is God's money. This is, a, this is the gospel money. I don't want to waste it. So if he's going to charge us more, I'll say pleasure if it means you know, whatever. I just don't want to you know, waste God's money. And so I decide to ask a clarifying question. Mr. Hurtado, are you here on business or pleasure? Why does that matter? Then the guy looks to his neighbor and goes, hey, hey, you know, you guys, whatever you, you, hey, whatever you guys, whatever, I, you know, I just asked the question, they tell me, I got to mark it down and put an X right there, I, I don't care what you're doing, it's a, and this guy from San Francisco, he doesn't want to answer that question, and, uh, and then it occurs to me, wait a second, what just happened? It, all this stuff happened. Wait, wait, no, 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 we're married. Well, not to each other, but. but. <laughs> Have you ever been misunderstood? So misunderstood that there's literally nothing you can say. I mean, you're not going to be able to get out of that misunderstanding. It's just kind of like, give me my keys. <laughs> I need to go. <laughs> Jesus was also misunderstood, but he was kind of misunderstood differently. He was intentionally misunderstood. People meant to misunderstand him. And today we're going to look at that. We're going to look at four different ways that Christ was misunderstood, and then we're going to see how that relates to the greatest question on earth. In what ways was Jesus misunderstood, and how does that relate to the greatest question on earth? What is the source of the misunderstanding about Jesus, and what is the greatest question on earth? And for that, we're going to go to the book of John. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 7. John's in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. You can find it in the New Testament there. If you don't know where it's at, ask your neighbor. I'm sure they'd love to help you. If both of you can't find it, turn in that first page in your Bible. Many people don't know. There's a little index there. It'll tell you exactly what page it's on. So you can follow along with us. John chapter 7. We'll start at verse 1. John chapter 7. The greatest question on earth. The first thing we're going to see is they misunderstood his purpose. They misunderstood his purpose. Look at John chapter 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee, purposely staying away from Judea, because Jews were there waiting to take his life. But when the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles was near, Jesus' brother said to him, You ought to leave here and go to Judea, so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore Jesus told them, The right time for me is not yet come. For you any time is right. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. You go to the feast. I'm not yet going up to the feast. Because for me, the right time has not yet come. Having said this, he stayed in Galilee. Misunderstanding his purpose. Misunderstanding his purpose. His very own brothers misunderstood his purpose. 
At this point, uh, Jesus is in Galilee, and it's a safer place for him. He had done a miracle, you might remember, in, in chapter 5, and right after that miracle, they decided they wanted to kill him, which is an amazing fact in itself. You do a miracle, a supernatural event, and their conclusion is he needs to die. And he knows his enemies are in Judea, and so it's safer for him to stay in Galilee. They're literally waiting to kill him, according to the text. But his brothers goes, wait a second, this is the Feast of Tabernacles. Another way, another thing, it was known as the Feast of Tents. It was a feast where they would take big branches and they would make little huts out of them, little booths, whether it was on the rooftops or on the fields, and they would live in these things for a week. And the whole reason they would do this, it was to represent, re-remember how God was faithful to us and faithful to our forefathers when they were in the wilderness for 40 years. And he provided for us. And so we're remembering that. We're commemorating that. And we're also remembering that God dwells with his people. So two things that event does. One, it, sub, it, it remembers God's provision, and secondly, commemorates that he dwells with his people. It's a very popular Jewish event. Uh, all young men were required to, be, to go back to Jerusalem for this event. All devout Jews would be there. They would all take part in it to celebrate God's provision and to celebrate that God lives amongst his people. And his brothers are all like, this is the perfect time for you, Jesus. They're there already celebrating that God provides. You could be his provision. You call yourself the Messiah. They're celebrating that God dwells with them. You are God dwelling with them. Why aren't you going to this event? Everybody will be there. It's the perfect time for a public display. You do all these miracles in Galilee for people who aren't your people, the people who, are, who, who aren't the ones who would make you king. Go to this place, make a public spectacle, get more out of your miracles. Capitalize on your miracles. This is the time, this is the place for publicity. Recapture those crowds that left you in chapter 6. Remember that? They leave him. You could recapture them right now by just doing some miracles there at this feast. And Jesus goes, oh, no, no, you've misunderstood my purpose. You've misunderstood my purpose. I'm not here to win back the crowds. That isn't my hope. That isn't my dream. I'm not here to make my name famous. I'm not here to be liked. You don't understand. Uh, you, you, the world doesn't hate you because you're one of them. The world hates me because I preach against them. I'm not here to win people over to my side. I'm here to die, but not yet. The time has not yet come. Kind of an interesting phrase, the time has not yet come. It says this often. Have you, seen, have you noticed that? You read through the gospel. Why in the world does that keep on happening? He'll be in the middle of a mob, and, and, and yet they weren't able to touch him. Why? Because the time has not yet come. Isn't that interesting? What's going on there? Surely he's closely in tune with God's will, but he's also closely in tune with his divine calendar. If you want to do your little study on your own, go to the book of Daniel one day and look at the timeline of when the Messiah was to die. I believe Jesus was in tune with that, making sure that he didn't die too early and didn't die too late. Later in chapter 8, they'll try to seize him, but they won't be able to. His time has not yet come. God will supernaturally protect him until it's the right time. They misunderstood his purpose, and they also misunderstood who he was. Let's look at verse 10. Misunderstanding who he is. Verse 10. However, after his brothers had left for the feast, he, also, he, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. 
Now at the feast, the Jews were watching for him and asking, where is that man? Among the crowds, there was a widespread whispering about him. Some would say, he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the Jews. Misunderstanding who he is. So he comes to the party a little late, kind of a covert operation. And when he gets there, you know what he finds? The debate. Everybody's debating about who? Him. He is the subject that divides the line. He is the purpose, the, the person that divides the, the division and debate. Is he a good person or is he a deceiver of people? There's widespread whispering and grumbling about him. Some say he's a good man. Others, says he, others say he, de he, de he deceives the people, which is interesting because the penalty for deceiving people is death, according to Cumulic Law, according to Deuteronomy. Isn't that interesting? It's a polarizing figure even in the first century. We find that today. What you believe about Jesus is polarizing the people, right? It is the, the topic that divides denominations. It is the topic that divides religious groups. It is the topic that divides many things. We're labeled intolerant because of the topic, right? He was polarizing back then. He's polarizing today. What you believe about him is polarizing. That's consistent for, for, for 20 centuries. Some believe he's a good person. You might have found, I don't believe he's God. I think he's a good person. It's kind of an interesting thought when you think about it. If he's a good person, then he's insane. Because the New Testament claims that he believed that he was God. His disciples claim that they believe that he is God. So if he's a good person, then he must be insane because he believed he was God. We just had an insane person in Colorado shoot up a theater. Would you label that person good? I don't know how an insane person is good. Some would say he deceives people. His teaching deceives people, makes them intolerant. They're not accepting of all groups. He's a dividing line on many different subjects. We at Valley Bible Church believe that he was God in the flesh, that he was who he says he was. We believe everything the Bible says about him. We believe everything this book says, whether it's PC or not PC, whether it's popular or not popular, whether it's polarizing or not polarizing, whether it's uncomfortable or not, we believe it. And the reason we do that is because once we start parsing this thing and deciding, well, this section isn't for me, and I can't believe this section, then you might just discontinue the whole thing. Discredit the whole thing. What part do you take and what part do you not take? And so we decide we're going to take the whole thing, whether people like it or not, we're going to take it. They misunderstood his purpose, they misunderstood who he was, and they misunderstood the source of his teaching. Look at verse 14. Misunderstanding the source of his teaching. Until halfway through the feast did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. And the Jews were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having studied? We know him. We know what family he came from. We know he didn't go to any rabbinic schools. He was never trained. How does he do this? How does he say this? Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak my own. He who speaks on his own does so to gain the honor for himself, but he who works for the honor of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There's nothing false about him. Misunderstanding the source of his teaching. Two ways to be learned in that day. One, you trained yourself. Two, you went to a school. You went to a rabbinic school. You sat under a rabbi. You were trained. Jesus wasn't trained, and so their thought was, he must be self-trained. 
And Jesus goes, oh, wait, wait, there's a third option there. You're missing the third option. God could have taught me. The source of my teaching could come from God. It makes sense. You know, he goes, and, he, and in Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount, he says stuff like, you have heard it said, but I say to you. He'll say stuff later on in the gospel and say, I tell you the truth. You know what he's saying? My teaching is superior than the teaching that you've heard. My teaching is higher than yours. And they're saying, how can your teaching be higher than our teaching? You've never been trained. I've been God-taught, not self-taught. I don't need any rabbinic training if God is teaching me. And by the way, this is the scariest option for you. This is the scariest option for you. Because if I was trained by a rabbi, I could have been trained wrong and I could be wrong. If I was self-taught, I could have made a mistake and I could be wrong. But if I'm God-taught, then everything I say is from God, and you're going to be held accountable for what you hear when I say it. And God's going to hold you accountable for whether or not you believed what I said and you did what I said. It's the scariest option for you. You know, he might hold you accountable for wanting to kill me and, and trying to kill me. He basically says, I'm not doing this for myself. I'm not doing this so people will like me. I'm not doing this so my name becomes famous. The message I'm preaching doesn't originate in myself. I don't feel the pressure of you liking me. I don't feel the pressure of whether or not you receive my message. The only pressure I feel is whether or not I deliver the message that God has sent me to deliver to you. That's all I'm evaluating myself on. Whether you like me or not, I don't care. I'm here to do what he told me to do. And this is, you know what? There's no faulty motivation in that. I won't make a mistake hoping that, that you like me. I'm just here to do what he wants me to do. And you know what? If us young preachers would just think that way sometimes, I don't care what the people are thinking. There's one person, there's one person at the back of the room who's watching, who I'm more concerned about than anyone else in the room. Misunderstanding the source of his teaching. He wasn't self-taught. He was God-taught. And finally, they misunderstood his miracles and what they said about him. They misunderstood his miracles and what they said about him misunderstanding his miracles. Look at verse 19. Has not Moses given you the law, and yet no one of you keeps the law? Why are you trying to kill me? You're demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who's trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, and you were all astonished. And yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though, not, though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a child on the Sabbath. Now, if a child can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing the whole man on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances. Make a right judgment. Misunderstanding his miracles and what they said about him. Jesus attacks their self-confidence, the belief inside of them that they're justified by obedience in the law. And they thought to themselves, we're keepers of the law. And Jesus goes smacking their heads, no you're not. You don't keep the law. In fact, the very miracle that you're attacking me on, you do yourself all the time. They call him demon possessed. Who's trying to kill you? <laughs> this is nothing new. We see it in Matthew 9, 12, Mark 3, Luke 11. It's the idea that you do uh, these powers, you get your power from the devil. Attributing his works to the devil. You're demonized. It's really the turning point in his ministry where Israel says, 
we don't want you, we reject you as Messiah, and from that point on, if you look in your Gospels, he now goes into quiet, he now goes into hiding, he now prepares for his death, he starts secluding himself with his disciples only, training them because he knows he's going to die, and they're going to be alone, and he doesn't do the crowd stuff anymore, and he's not wooing the crowds anymore, they've already officially rejected me, now I'm doing stuff on my own quietly, waiting for the right time, waiting for the exact time God wants me to die, so that every scripture is fulfilled in the Old Testament, and then... I'm going to go, and these guys are going to set forth. The whole thing that Mark said is their official rejection when they attribute his works to Satan. And he goes, you guys remember, like in, in John chapter 5, I did this miracle. There was a paralyzed guy. You remember this? There's a paralyzed guy. He's sitting by the pool, and he can't, when the pools are stirred, the first, first person to jump in the pool gets healed. And he says, he says to Jesus, there's nobody here to help me in the pool. I'm paralyzed. I can't get in the pool by myself. And so when the waters are stirred, I can't get in there fast enough, and I don't get healed. And Jesus says, you're healed. It's an amazing thing. It says he's been paralyzed for 38 years. 38 years, man's never walked, and all of a sudden Jesus says something, the guy walks. And instead of them looking at that going, holy cow, what just happened? Oh, my goodness. Can you imagine having a child who was blind for 38 years, and all of a sudden they could see? Your response would be, God, this is amazing. You're awesome. You're wonderful. I give you glory. I listen to whatever you say. And instead of doing that, you know what they do? They go, you shouldn't have done that. It was on the Sabbath. You could have done it tomorrow. You could have done it yesterday. But today, no, no, no. And so Jesus is coming back to that miracle in chapter saying, he said, let's analyze that for a second. You get mad at me for healing a guy on the Sabbath. And yet you guys perpetually break this law all the time. That's what he's saying to them. There's two laws. There's a circumcision law that says you're supposed to circumcise a child on the eighth day. And then there's a Sabbath law that says you're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath. Well, what happens when the, you can't predict when a child's born? And so when a child's born and then eight days later it's a Sabbath, what do you do? You've got two conflicting laws. And your own teachers and your own rabbis have said there is a greater law. The law to circumcise supersedes the law of the Sabbath in that situation. Why? Because it's a purification rite on the body. And you know what Jesus says? If you can purify one part of the body on the Sabbath, why can't I purify the whole body on the Sabbath? Why can't I heal the whole body on the Sabbath? And by the way, you're missing the point. The fact that I can do the supernatural says something about me. You've seen this pattern in the Old Testament over and over and over again. When I have a spokesman, I validate my spokesman. When I have a, a, a person, a prophet, I validate them, I authenticate them, I put my stamp of approval. But you know how I do that? Through the miraculous. You should recognize this pattern. If he can do it, they're not questioning his works. They're not questioning that he did a miracle. They're questioning how he did the miracle. They're questioning why he did the miracle. They're not looking at the fact that he did a miracle. They're missing the whole point. Why doesn't this validate? Why aren't you saying to yourself, oh my goodness, you did an amazing supernatural thing. I should listen to what you're saying. But they don't like what he's saying. And they don't want to listen. And so they're looking for loopholes. They're majoring on the minors. They're critical. They're grasping at technicalities. They're trying any way they can to get out of listening, listening to what he's saying. So help me understand this. You saw me turn water into wine and John chapter 2. And in John chapter 4, you, you saw me heal the helpless, the official son. I healed him. In John chapter 5, I, I healed the paralyzed man. I healed the helpless. And in John chapter 6, I fed thousands of people. 
You've seen me do these miracles. And what was your response to these miracles? To believe what I've said? No, 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 no. Hey, we like it when you make us a meal. We re- Show us another miracle, man. We're hungry. Can we have steak this time? That's their response. And finally, he says at the end of chapter 6, hey, you don't need any more food. You don't need me to make you any more food. You need to consume me. You need me. You need spiritual food. And you know what? They decide, wait a second, he wants us to be cannibals. No, no, no. That's nothing to do with cannibalism. You need Jesus. But you're so blinded, you won't even see it. You know, sometimes we hear people say, if I could just see a miracle, I would believe. If, I could ju- if God would just show me, show me a sign, I would believe. You know, it's not true. They saw plenty of them, and they didn't believe. It's not true. What you need is faith, and that faith only comes from God. You need him to open your eyes. But there's no questioning Jesus is a polarizing figure. The crowd understood it. If he's a false prophet, he needs to be put to death. If he's not, if he's a son of God, it should be followed. He's polarizing. There's no way out. It's the greatest question on earth. What do you do with Jesus? What do you do with Jesus? Is he a false prophet or is he God? What do you do with Jesus? If he's the son of God, he must be followed. Do you accept him as God? Or do you discredit him? Find the loophole, dodge the truth. Look for the escape clause. Search for the technicality to get you out of it. You know what the big idea of the message is? People misunderstand the works of Jesus because they don't want to follow him. People misunderstand the works of Jesus because they don't want to follow him. Why do people misunderstand the works of Jesus? Because they want no part of him. They don't want to follow him. We see this in non-believers. Maybe you're here today and you say, I'm not a Christ follower. I'm just here checking this out. Great. I don't believe Jesus walked on earth. Well, you're the only historian on the earth who doesn't believe that. All historians. We teach it in our history departments. Jesus walked on earth. Well, I don't believe the Bible is accurate. I don't believe it's historically accurate. Okay. Do you believe Homer's historically accurate? Do you know why we believe Homer's history? Because we have 500 copies and because it claims to be historically accurate. Guess what? The Bible, we have, the New Testament by itself, we have 6,000 manuscripts and it claims to be historically accurate. So your issue isn't with accuracy. Your issue is you don't believe miracles. You don't believe the miracles, have, the miracles that the Bible talks about. Why don't you believe the miracles the Bible talks about? Same problem they have. Because if I believe the miracles they talked about, then that reflects God. And if that reflects God, then I should listen to what it says. And if I don't want to listen to what it says, then I say I don't think it's accurate. I understand where you're coming from. The fact of the matter is we love to be in control of our own lives. And if you're not a believer, I wouldn't blame you. We're hoping that God gets a hold of your heart and that one day you could say, I'll submit my life to you. We see this very same thing in believers. People misunderstand the works of Jesus because they don't want to follow him. Why do people misunderstand the works of Jesus? Because they don't want to follow him. We still have this sin nature. Even though we're saved, we have this sin nature, and every once in a while it creeps up. And we look for excuses. And we look for the loophole. We're drawn to the escape clause. And and, and we we justify our action based on technicalities. I'll give you an example. Many times we find people who are living together. They're believers, and they're living together. You're believers in Jesus Christ, and yet you're living together. You know what the Bible calls that? Fornication. It's a sin. It's a big sin. It's not a small sin. It's a big sin. 
It's up there with murder, you know what I mean, when it's listed. It's a big sin. And people say to themselves, well, I mean, that's a first century ideal. Come on, we're in the 20th century today. God isn't really concerned about what we're doing with our sex lives, is he? I mean, surely that's a cultural issue that was back then. Today, it doesn't, yeah, it's not that big of a, in fact, Big Dave, we're engaged. Wait, we've got, we've set a date. We've already rented the hall. We're going to be married. So it's okay for us to sleep with each other. He's not really concerned with that, is he? Looking for excuses, looking for the loophole, the escape clause, the technicality. The fact of the matter is even when we're believers, we can like to be in control. I want to be in control of my life. And sometimes giving over control to this book and this God is not what I want. So I misunderstand the scriptures. Why? Because I don't really want to follow him. If you're a believer, be careful not to fall into the category of trying to justify your sin. If you're a non-believer, why not submit your life to Jesus? Give it over to a God who would die for sin, a God who would pay the penalty for sin on the cross, and then three days later conquer sin and death with the resurrection. A God who offers forgiveness for your sin if you trust in his work. Why don't you do that? You know, we talk about grace, grace, and it's a beautiful thing, and we should talk about grace. Grace is a beautiful thing. And the mercy of God is beautiful, but we have to be careful at the same time that we don't cheapen it. The epistles all talk about a right life to live with God. And the scariest thing is when we believers begin to believe that that is optional. The greatest question on earth, what do you do with Jesus? Father, I pray two categories of people in the room for the person who came today and said, I just want to feel good and go to church. I'm not necessarily looking to be challenged. I'm not even a Christ follower. I pray you'd open their eyes. This very day, they could be, their destination can change from heading towards hell to heading towards heaven. And it all rides on how they answer the question, what do you do with Jesus? If that's you, I challenge you. Come see us, pastors. We'd love to help you in your spiritual journey. And if, if it's not us, would you go see the person who invited you? Would you go see the person who brought you today? Ask them questions. This big guy really believes what he's talking about. Can you help me out with this? And if you don't know how to answer the questions, Valley Bible Church people, come talk to us. We want to equip you on how to answer the questions. And then for the rest of us, Father, help us as we still battle the sin nature inside of us that wants to justify what we're doing to what makes it optional to follow your word. Help us have a stubbornness in our heart to say, no, it's not optional. I'm following my God.